Hi folks, before we start the podcast, a little bit of housekeeping. Um, we are only a few days away from the Tortoise Shack Live Easter Bank Holiday Weekend in the Sugar Club in Dublin. Tickets are available now on eventbrite.ie, so if you go to eventbrite.ie, throw in Tortoise Shack, you will find us there. I uh, hope to see lots of you there. We have some brilliant guests and some great entertainment lined up for you on the evening. Um, outside of that, we'd really appreciate if you would put your hands in your pockets and help keep this platform viable. It's patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. And for that, you get a ton of additional content. Uh, you get access to the podcast as they're done in one consolidated um, podcast feed, whether it be Reboot, whether it be Echo, whether it be Glow West, whether it's Police, so or our new podcast, Built Different, which is just out in the last few days. Uh, do check that out. So it's patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack. I'll let you enjoy the podcast from yesterday. It, it got a little bit of... Um, I'll let you enjoy the podcast from yesterday. It's certainly got a lot of traction on social media. Uh, maybe it's time to find out what all the fuss is about. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon and welcome to the Tortoise Shack Sunday special. Uh, this is our rundown of the week that was. Uh, some of the stories that made the headlines. Some of the stories that are making the headlines while we're talking, Mr. Woods. Um, and some of the things that maybe slipped under the under thing. I have a huge panel here. And again, we're not joined by uh, by Martin because he's unwell, but uh, he sends his, his his regards. Nonetheless, I, I just want to introduce who, who we have uh, today. We have our regular contributor, Mr. Mr. Uh, Mr. Poles himself, Harry, Harry Mac Evans. On yeah, hey Harry, how are you? Hey, not doing too bad, Tony. Thanks for having me on, as ever. Good to see you. Um, we have Dublin Enquirer reporter Shamim Malakmian again. Shamim, this we're going to go to you first when we get started. But thanks for coming on. And then we have Owen O'Brien, Sinn Fein's housing spokesperson, and uh, one of those stories that hasn't uh, flown under the radar. We have the uh, the, the journalist behind it, uh, Killian Woods from the Business Post. Um, I, but Shamim, I would like to come to you first because it's always the, the way we've seen so much coverage about what's been happening in Ireland and taking in refugees and the and what was. Possible and what has you know, what 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 has created and and it has been said to me by several people a little bit of dissatisfaction amongst people who were in direct provision or in the in the asylum system and then you you see you know the the what what was possible but you spoke to a very interesting case but a very uh, a a young medical student in in Ukraine whose family are in Dublin. Obina uh, is uh, he's he's Nigerian citizen, but family here in Dublin, and he's had a lot of difficulty. Shamim, so if you wouldn't mind, could you just give our listeners an idea of why there's such a difference between, well, first of all, how Obina's experience is, and what what the difference is between his his treatment and the treatment of Ukrainian citizens, for example. Yeah, so so I wrote about Abina and Walko this week, who is a Nigerian, as you said, medical student in Ukraine. He's been there for six or seven years. He's been he's just enrolled to do his specialty in psychiatry. Um, so when the war broke out, he 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 had to kind of escape as everybody was escaping, and he had thought that surely he's gonna come to his family in Dublin because his family are based in Dublin. He's not. He doesn't have a home in Nigeria, but once he gets to Romania, they cross the border to Romania. And once he goes to the embassy, they say, no, the visa waiver only applies to Ukrainian citizens. So you can't um, avail of it. So what happens is um, basically he's basically a stranded 
in Romania and he doesn't know what to do at this situation. And in this case was especially interesting to me because I, I was like, they are they're saying that people can come here, but this person says my family is here, you know, this person's coming back home. And that so that was a case that was really interesting to me, and I wanted to cover it, even though I had other cases of uh, non-European citizens having difficulties. But this case was especially strong, uh, in my opinion. It's 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 really strong because it shows the it it, it proves the point that we have a different treatment for 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 individuals who uh, and yet i i know you spoke to a solicitor in kod lines and he pointed out that it's within the minister's remit to actually speed up the visa process for in this case it should be done clearly in my mind and yet he's in effect in limbo and this is someone bear in mind who's going to be a qualified psychiatrist come back to to sit the equivalent exams here and then actually work in the irish health service and provide that service which is very much needed it just seems to me uh, cruel and, and unnecessarily cruel, Shamim. Uh, have you got anywhere with, have you, has the story got any traction? Have you got anywhere with the department? Um, the Justice Department initially said to me, if we, we lift visa restriction for this person, we have to do it for everybody. But as uh, Stephen Kirvin of KOD Alliance said, this isn't the case because the minister has the discretionary power. Um, what happened, I know Paul Murphy put in a question at the doll and asked the minister about it. But what the, what the minister said was basically the response I got of the press office that, you know, these citizens need a visa. But if they put in a visa, we're going to do our best to kind of accommodate them. It is funny to me because he has to essentially put in a tourist visa application. And one of the things that they would look at when trying to give you a visa, tourist visa application, if anything ties you down to the country you're coming from. And he basically, he he's coming essentially to join his family. So well, well his sister's an Irish citizen. Yeah, she is. So yeah. so I mean like uh, like I know this sounds really like uh, again like um this week we put out the first episode of the of the Built Different podcast three young uh Irish women of African of African descent or a first generation but they're all, they've all got different residency status because of that that racist law that we uh, that with the amendment, the referendum that we had, that's created all the hassle for 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 these people because we had people call them anchor babies, and this 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 awful phrase was used, um, and it just seems to me, you know, these, these, this is this is un, unintentionally maybe cruel, but certainly has has to, something has to give on this. I mean, like it needs to be done at a higher level, obviously, but but Obina's case, I think, highlights it very well um, that that. And if anybody was listening to my conversation with Teresa Buchowska from the, the Migrant Council, she she was working with in, the, in groups at the Polish-Ukraine border that were showing how the treatment of people of color was so different to people from, you know, white people from Ukraine. And, the, 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 you know, and some of the links we've been we've been actually sharing are for free legal aid for people of color trying to. Uh, get away from war. It, it's it's unnecessarily cruel. Um, I don't know if anybody else has a comment on this. I just uh, I I'm just conscious that it's you know we we do need to 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 move on, but we want to highlight this case at the outset because it's really important that we we call this stuff out, guys. This this is um this is the systemic and uh, institutional. I, I I suppose we could call it racism, but I think it's just ignorance in many cases as well. That where where a someone who's who should be coming home to Ireland uh, is being denied that. And, and the status is even different, as I said, than his own sister. Um, Shamim, I will come back to it to, today. I just want to, I want to move on because um, 
I, I want to go first to Killian on the story on O'Devney Gardens this morning, um, because Killian, I this I, I tweeted about it earlier and I said this is one of those uh, I told you so's that I'm not happy about, <laughs> and um, but we did we told you so you know I mean there's an article actually in Shamim your 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 colleague Lisa Nealan did did work on it at the time of the vote and we knew that this was possibly something that was going to happen Mel Reynolds said it Orla Hegarty said it. Um, Killian, do you want to just explain why what, what what has happened and why everybody needs to be paying attention? Yeah, I think you said it well there. Like that, um, and to give credit where credit's due, this this story comes about because of probably a lot of the work Leisha Leisha Neal and Dublin Choir did following the internet. It's quite a tricky, well, maybe it was painted to be a tricky vote, wasn't that complicated of a vote being presented to them city councillors a few years ago in Dublin about the transfer of land. And you see this thing, the use word the use of the word sales probably even inaccuracy that see that's quoted a few different places that really this is more really you can butter up in a few different ways. Slam was essentially gifted to Barter Capital to develop on to then build a certain amount of social housing and cut an affordable rental affordable housing on the site in return for them getting then a certain proportion of private units to sell on site. They there was some early deals in place that was so there was some early discussions in place that they might. I mean, a heavy might uh, attached to this sell 30% of them to Dublin City Council again, and then only have 20% of the whole um, of the whole 1047 to sell in the private market. Now, that, that, that deal, it doesn't look like that was ever really on the cards. It was just a bit of kite flying at the time. And now that we're faced with this week to, to bring up to date, so I suppose we said a bit of context. Last September, the Bart Bar- Capital get planning permission for, their, for the 1047 homes on the site. A few weeks later, it becomes very apparent that there's a condition attached to that that prevented the sale of any of the units on site to institutional funds or what they call them a corporate a corporate entity. So they could go to a, they could go to a big AHB for social housing. They could go to they could go to owner occupiers buying them one off. They couldn't go to a corporate entity. Barter Capital asked the Dublin City Council, as I said, asked Borplanala if they could remove that condition or that that, that condition would prevent the O'Devney Gardens going ahead. Borplanala weren't doing. Uh, weren't correcting it as quick as Barter would have liked. So Barter felt they were going to miss their window to lodge a legal appeal. So they lodged a legal appeal. And now um, at the end, I think it's the beginning of March, Borpanala made the decision um, to actually amend the conditions. Now that that, that ban and effectively so, on, on an institutional buyer coming in and buying them has been lifted, which means I, it's back to status quo of I, 50% I, I, of them up for sale. I recall um, at the time, Mel Reynolds, the architect and, and really, really excellent um, brain on this piece saying this was going to happen because it was the way to build it out. This was the best way to build it out if you're Bartra to, 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 to do it, to develop the site. And, and um, I know things, you know, have, have gone on there. I actually it was Harry, you made the point on Twitter. I saw you said, well, uh, shock. I am shocked if, uh, that, to see that people who, who care about shareholder value have, have played out the best shareholder value possible that was that they could do. Uh, but but Owen, I want to I want to come to you on this, because at the time, if you recall, I think it was two and a half years before the, the, that vote. Uh, Sinn Féin were in favor of, of the development of the site. And then when this when the deal was put forward as as constituent uh, in its in, in its current form even though that's been changed you were then opposed it so so what changed and why why did why did is why did you change your your mind between then and now and what do you think has happened we we didn't change our mind and more particularly our, our councillors didn't change our minds the background goes to kind of 2015 2016 
uh, um, the overwhelming majority of councillors wanted central government to fund Dublin City uh, to de develop out 100% affordable. So you'd have had a mix of social affordable rental and affordable purchase. Simon Coveney becomes minister um, and he meets with councillors and makes it clear that he's not going to fund 100% development. Uh, there's a bit of a protracted negotiation and eventually he puts enough money on the table for 30% social and 20% affordable uh, 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 purchase, but only if the council did it as a joint venture uh, with a private developer through what's called the land initiative. There was a vote in 2017 and some people uh, uh, accidentally misrepresent this and some people deliberately misrepresent it. The vote was, are you having a go at me now, are you? <laughs> absolutely not, but, but it, it's important because the record is very clear. The vote was to allow the managers to explore what kind of deal could be done through the land initiative. So our councillors and the record uh, can be checked, uh, uh, voted for that. But they made very clear that there would be a number of conditions that would have to be met uh, if to support the final proposition. And the two key elements of that were the affordable homes would have to be genuinely affordable. And if the council was to sell land, it would have to get full market value. When the final deal was published in early 2018, uh, first of all, there are no affordable homes for purchase on this site. Uh, the deal involves purchasing homes, let's say a two or three bed for €310,000, but you will also have to pay back an equity stake to the local authority. We found out earlier this year that that would be an additional 97000 So the so-called affordables are €410,000. Uh, and as Killian said, uh, uh, there was also no transaction on the land. So the land that Bartra are building the private units on uh, was never actually valued for full market value. There was no land sale uh, in the contract documents. Instead, Bartra makes a cash lump sum payment of six million. But it is acquiring land uh, that probably has a market value of 40 million by uh, any rough estimate. So we'd always said if it wasn't a good deal, we'd oppose it. And when we, we saw the final outline of it, we opposed it and we've continued to do so since. Two, two other important things, because uh, there's two other murky bits to the story on top of what Killian has just outlined. The first is that when the deal uh, broke, uh, you remember, it got fierce criticism from everywhere. Even the uh, editorial of the Irish Independent spoke against it. Uh, and it looked like the deal, which was 30% social, 20% so-called affordable, and 50% open market sale, uh, was going to sink. So Brendan Kenny, the then manager uh, of the housing department, negotiated with Bartra the possibility of purchasing 30% uh, of the uh, private units uh, for an AHB for affordable cost rental. And it was on that basis that the Civic Alliance, so uh, Fianna Fáil, Labour, the Greens, one sock them because uh, they broke on this one and Finnegale supported it. Now, those negotiations have been ongoing. Uh, and my understanding is, is at the core of the problem is that Bartra are looking for somewhere in the region of €450,000 for a two bedroom apartment. Uh, and under the, the current structure of the cost rental equity loan scheme, that's how government and AHBs are to deliver cost rental. Uh, if they were to acquire the properties at that price, you'd be looking at a rent of about 1,800 euros. So there's been this kind of deadlock going on um, or this deadlock talks going on for a while because ultimately the councillors who did vote for the deal did so under the pretense that affordable cost rent was going to be delivered. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, the, and the really important thing about the Inboard Planola decision is it's given Bartra a, a really strong hand in those, in those negotiations because already Bartra have threatened that if the state doesn't stump up the 450 million, uh, they'll sell to a fund. Uh, Adam Higgins from The Sun discovered that in an FOI that Killian references in his story today. But now Bartra can go back to the department and the HB sector and say, if you don't 
buy these at the price we are dictating, we will go and sell for a fund. And the crucial thing is none of the other parts of the development. There was a very confusing discussion on uh, uh, Gav Riley just now because they're confusing the DCC development on the side of the site with the Bartra development, the two completely different things. But Bartra are saying, and they said this in a letter to the minister uh, uh, earlier last year, if the government doesn't step in and agree a forward purchase agreement for an AHB at about 450 grand a unit, they will sell to a fund because if they don't, they can't build anything out. So we're now in the worst of all possible worlds because either A, a bunch of these departments will be sold to a fund and they'll be sold out at uh, rented out at extortionate rents, or B, Bartra will force the government to, to spend an enormous volume of public money to acquire units for so-called cost rental. And of course, they're nothing close to that whatsoever. Again, it's been pointed out in the comments that that I think Lorcan Sir did did do great work on this at the outset. So did Orla Hegarty, by the way. She 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 spoke in great length about what the price was going to be per unit by the end of this. Killian, if if I mean you've just listened to Owen there, what's your take on this now in terms of? I mean, you've been covering this beat for for a number of years now, but I mean. I don't think we're surprised. I don't think anybody who was going to be listening to this is surprised because, you know, we're of a certain persuasion that, that we listen to, that we've been following this for a long time. But it's still the the biggest, it's like our worst fears. For me, it's my worst fears realized. Yeah, I think comes out, and I was listening to that discussion there on, on Gav Rye's show, News Talk as well. Um, and I think that's what people, if you read the story, I think it comes very clear what from start to finish what, what's happened here. But like I, I can see where a lot of people's confusion coming into it now is, um, it's very, very valid. Is we've kind of gotten this normalised stage now of where a bunch of homes have to be sold off to a fund for one part of it to happen, and with in danger of that becoming very, very, very normal. And in fact, the Barter are arguing that we can't really do the other part of it unless this happens, and that. It just doesn't add up at this stage. What, why that? Why that's the case? Or uh, that's what people I think get a very exercised moment when I talk to them and try. And people who have a loose interest or loose interest in the housing crisis are starting to get an interest in, in in following it because it's effect now coming to their front door. Whether that's parents of kids who are still living at home or people who are looking to buy. It's like how has it gotten to a stage where we have a huge demand for housing? A very good site located in Dublin. It was on public land, and now we're all of a sudden. And I think, like oh, I'm quoting on here from the piece, but over the, kind of over the barrel of where to buy them or not for 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 public use. And um, it just doesn't really make sense from start to finish how how it's gotten to say. And I think that's what's getting people very exercises. And I I struggle to say as well because you, people could come back to you and say, well, Tony. You know why can't why can't we buy the why can't we buy these homes? Like there's clearly a demand. If Barger put them on the open market, you'd get 500 people who would be or households who would be willing, or at least you get maybe 30 percent of that 500, 300 people willing to buy an apartment in Odevany Gardens. Developers say you wouldn't. Um, you know, and that's where kind of in this kind of mid, no man's land of not really not, of, of one side saying there's no demand for these apartments to buy, but we're still want to build them for people for social housing, which has kind of got locked into it. A bit of a weird dynamic in that. You know, people say that all oh, people who want to buy don't want to live in apartments and won't buy apartments. It's always, so, it's always, but, but, it's always, so, but, but then way. it's up, but it's okay then, but for the build, but the but develop, but yeah, but it's fine. We'll build them for social housing. It's kind of like yeah. you say, well, people don't want to live in, and developers say themselves, people don't want to live in three bed apartments because they see them as lower standard living, right? That's why they don't want, that's why they won't buy them. If they were really high standard living, people would buy them. But now we're at the stage where, where it's okay to build them for social housing. So what, like, what quality are these apartments too? If people don't want to buy them when they're on sale in the open market, and developers say that, but it's okay to put a family of three or family of four in these apartments. Oh, and that's where we're getting this weird stage where social housing is, is, is going to be 
apartments and houses are going to be for middle class and up. It's it's very weird that we're getting into standards. So many intricacies to it. That, that, that goes that goes all the way back to it goes all the way back to the Maynooth housing where they say well where, where the decision was made effectively to say well look apartments aren't, aren't homes only houses are homes. That was the kind of mentality that came across. And it's always it's always men um, in suits who are probably economists who tell who tell us that uh, that who live in four bedroom semis that people want these apartments you know like that's that's always the, the mentality tony it's, it's important to understand the legal basis of on board planola's decision because uh, uh last summer Darrell o'brien introduced new planning regulations by way of of mandatory ministerial guidelines uh, uh that would effectively prohibit uh, houses and duplexes from being both bought by funds this was separate to pascal donahue's increase in stamp duty uh, but apartments were explicitly excluded from that. And there was a really lively debate in the doll because, of course, what we were all saying on the opposition was apartments should be homes and apartments should be available to buy as well as rent. Um, but on board Planola's decision, uh, uh, the revised decision in, in uh, March, is entirely consistent and dependent on the government's planning regulations that were introduced last year. So this is government policy. Um, and uh, uh, we, we uncovered... Very interesting correspondence between Paul McAuliffe when he was the mayor of Dublin City uh, and Owen Murphy when he was the minister at the time the deal was struck, where uh, uh, Paul, uh, um, as mayor, of course, had written to Owen Murphy, uh, urging him to provide the funding to purchase the private units at the very high price to deliver so-called cost rental. And Owen Murphy wrote back saying, not a chance. Um, uh, he had no intention of it. Fine Gael were committed to the, the 30-20-50 uh, uh, split. So none of this is an accident. None of this is, is it has just turned out this way uh, because of the way in which both Simon Coveney's financing arrangements that was originally agreed, then Owen Murphy's mandatory ministerial guidelines, uh, and then uh, 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 the Civic Alliance and Darrell O'Brien's kind of continuation with the deal, we've ended up with this. And, and the, here's the tragedy. Uh, and you mentioned Orla and, and Mel and Lorcan, and they've said this from 2018. If central government had provided Dublin City Council with the capital finance to build out that development, we could have had exactly the same development, right? The 800 homes that were originally required, they could have looked just as good and be built to exactly the same specs, but they would have been built for, on average, €250,000. And because there was no, would have been no marketization of the land, they then could have been used for social housing, affordable purchase and affordable rental at genuinely affordable prices, uh, not the appallingly inflated prices that we're now going to get, uh, uh, and that was always the best way to deliver it. Well, we were told we were told we had to do it this way because it would be quicker, and yet here we are, how many years on, uh, uh, and planning hasn't even been finally granted because it's still subject to the judicial review. Although we suspect that will be withdrawn. Um, uh, I, but I, I, my, Rick, Rick no, I, for another year or so. I know, I, like I, I, I put it up earlier. I, put, we sat, I sat on stage with, with Lorcan Orla and Hugh Brennan, who's delivered affordable homes, who and explained this is the alternative and this is how it could be done. And you said, uh, we said, we said, you, what do you need to get started? And he said, just, just give me the land and I'll do it. You know, so, so it was, it was doable. Look, I, I think the biggest fear, and maybe Killian, this is back to you as well, is that this is now this is now the model. And if they, you know, if this is successful as it as it, as Owen seems to feel that it will be, that the state is over a barrel for land that we had, you know, there uh, the LDA will just uh, will 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 become this by a thousand. Yeah, like that, that's that's was kind of maybe in, in my uh, frantic nature trying to get that point across that that this could become just a normalized model and that they have to be a certain amount of homes sold off in the site to a fund to actually 
fund the, to allow for the social or maybe the the owner occupier element of one to be to be to be done. Um, although you'd now I'd now hear from inside industry and talking to different people that would that have planning permissions when got in touch with them about what are you doing with that site? You've got you've got permission for three hundred apartments just in outside the M fifty belt, and or just inside it, and they said it's not viable. And they well, why why are you planning to build them then? I said, well, that's all I can do with the land. But it, it seems like a lot of developers now are in a, in a speculation game and just trying to get rid of their land with at the highest price possible based on planning rules. Um, so I don't know if it, 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 this could become the new normal to a degree, but then I think you get you get some people in the development industry becoming very very clear. It's it's it shouldn't have taken this long to become clear. It's becoming clear now there's a very limited appetite. For apartments at this level, and say, oh, oh um, Owen was talking about the cost, the level of cost rentals that have to be charged on some of these units. Like that is hailed as not quite silver bullet, but it's something that could be a big solution to the rental crisis. Yeah, uh, we don't, rental. But, but, but we don't but, have yeah, real cost rental. <laughs> no, but that that that's to me like eighteen hundred, eighteen hundred euro a month. Like, you know, like 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 even let's go to the lower end. And um, the LDA's project in Shangana, if that if that um if that actually becomes it comes to fruition in time. And, and this is the early indicative rents they're quoting for one beds is I think eleven hundred um, to twelve hundred, so one thousand one hundred, one thousand two hundred euro a month for a one bed. That's just not like that's just not affordable. That's, I, I, that's I, I, not I, cost rental. That's not. I, no, 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 I, it's not. It's is. not cost rental. I, I, Sinead Mercy did a very good thread about it this week on and Sinead, ex of the Greens uh, and Harry, you'd remember this helped write some of the Greens policies pre. Yep going into government on on what it should look like um and it's obviously been i'm going to use the word bastardized uh in in, <laughs> in, in delivery um like uh, it does seem like we don't do we we're, we're, we're we've just re, we've changed what cost rental means relative say a vienna model or the likes and harry you were involved you saw what the policy started out as and what it is now yeah, we, we have. Um, and I mean, it's not the only thing. I mean, look, you took Sinead's work on just transition as well and how that's been kind of bastardized by the, the government. Um, it's been, well, look, it's been indicative of the whole thing. But it's kind of the problem is that a lot of these things, when they came into it, it was like, oh, we have this surface level policy that isn't particularly well understood. We have the Vienna model. Let's go and apply that. But the problem is, and this is what Owen and Killian have both been talking about, I think, is that there's an underlying issue that can't be resolved by just taking these models and slapping it onto the existing system. Like, the, the fundamental thing is with what happens with council level now is that if you don't accept the deal, it's not going to get built because central government has made a policy decision that they want things to be a certain way. And ultimately, the council is an inconvenient rubber stamp that gets in the way of that. Um, and until that's addressed, you're not going to have an effective change. It's not just the idea of implementing cost rental or looking at the types of units. It's a whole holistic um, addressing of the way we approach uh, approach housing in this in this country when you look at things like buyback that the guys have mentioned like why are we doing that as owen rightly says that's just wasting it's just making things more expensive that could be facilitated anyway if central government was willing to put up the funding it isn't willing to do that um and now we have a case where they'll eventually find something that is acceptable to the council and then the council will go and say yep okay and then it won't matter anyway because uh, they'll just take a legal a legal challenge or go to a board planola and force a change to be made to move into as killian says normalizing the existing model so when you try and put cost rental on top of a system that is fundamentally built around developer profits, it's not going to work. You're not going to have an effective way to do it because the developer isn't going to provide those units because you're entirely dependent on the developer. And that's the problem with a lot of, a lot of what we've seen from this government is that they are taking these things that in isolation make kind of sense like cost rental and then applying them to a framework that is so deeply broken and dysfunctional that it could never address the underlying problem. Um, and we've seen that so much with the Green Party that they have all these you know, fine ideas and fine policies. And I worked in the past during my time in the party, not specifically on that one, but they're coming in and there's no 
understanding of, hey, there needs to be, and they love using the phrase system change. And I noticed Philip Fall and Finnegale have been picking on up, up on that a little bit recently while not actually doing anything to change the system while applying these band-aids that then mean they don't work. And the problem with that is it's now a system of cost rental. What does that actually mean to people? That's another failed policy. How do you then rescue that and make that into something meaningful when it's already tied to the this developer-led model that's, oh. even if we look at the specific legislation, has specific carve-outs for greater developer profits than you'd see in other locations? And that's kind of the problem. The whole thing needs to be completely readdressed. As, as was mentioned, we need to have funding at the local council, not only to, to build things, or we need a kind of like a state building agency or something like that to do it. We need... Um, better controls on prices, all of these things need to fundamentally address the way the market works and the way we interact with that market and the market dominance of how housing is procured and created in this country. Otherwise, all those models are not going to work. Yeah, look, I think that's a really good summary. I just want to point out that a couple of things are interesting to me now. I, I pointed out a couple of weeks ago that in, in say, Phoenix, Arizona currently, we, they've they've got a, a REIT issue as well, where they're you know they're developing nearly 30, 35 percent of all new properties coming onto the market, and rather than than tackle it, the the local the the, the local government there are offering incentives to say here's ten grand, here's ten thousand dollars to if you if you rent to a an affordable someone who needs affordable rent, and they'll subsidize the rent. And that would be my ter- ter- that would terrify me that they'll they'll say actually what we do now is we'll just pay more money and uh, back to Owen's point we'll pay more money for for the same standard of things and we won't address it and then we saw yesterday and I know it's kind of a false equivalence but it is quite funny that Canada has moved to say no foreign purchases of properties for two years and the the largest private landlord in Ireland is a Canadian owned fund called Iris Reach we we're we're a bit backwards on this uh, before we wrap on a bit backwards on that. Well, yeah, I suppose the, the key thing is that uh, outside of government buildings and the customs house, there's a broad consensus on what needs to be done. Um, so if you talk to most housing policy analysts, if you uh, read most of the good journalism uh, uh, that we've seen tracking housing on a variety of publications, and if you listen to the opposition, and again, there's broad consensus on the opposition benches, we know exactly what cost rental is and how you can deliver good quality cost rental homes to rent for between 700 and 900 euros a month. We know how you can deliver really good quality uh, affordable purchase homes that would be not just affordable to the first purchaser, but every subsequent purchaser for 230000 or less. And we also know how you can deliver homes at a lower price. Uh, they're using, for example, in Scandinavia and some parts of England, they're building really, really good quality uh, zero carbon apartments uh, out of high quality timber products. Uh, that are, you know, dual aspect, that are 80 or 90 square metres, uh, and they cost about a thousand euros less per square metre to deliver uh, than the apartments we build here. So we know what the solutions are. Um, um, our difficulty is a blockage uh, between the, uh, the Customs House and Kildare Street. And until that changes, we're going to be stuck in this loop where good ideas uh, are badly implemented. And the, 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 Harry's got it right. It's not even just that the system is broken, but government is absolutely convinced that private developers are the only way to deliver homes. Uh, And it's really important we separate out two things. Uh, Private builders and private developers are not the same. Builders just build houses and apartments and they build them on a small margin. Uh, And I really don't care who builds the damn things. What matters is who is the developer, who owns the land, who secures the planning permission, and where the state acts as a developer on its own land or not-for-profit agencies, whether it's Okulon or AHBs. You can treat all of those soft costs completely differently. You can innovate in the hard costs and you can uh, ensure that we can deliver homes on scale at a price that people can afford, whether social rent, affordable cost rent or affordable purchase. Uh, 
Um, and, and that's, I suppose, where we're at. What I would say about Devney Gardens is it's not over yet. Uh, it would still be possible at this late stage to withdraw from the deal and to return to the idea of a state-led development. We also have Oscar Trainer Road, uh, absolute mirror image of it. We have the Donna Bate lands. Even worse. Oh, no, oh, 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 we got to we got to move on. But we did we did win the vote initially when when people got together. And Killian, you'll remember this. Shamim, you'll remember it. People got to uh, at different parties and they and they won the vote on Oscar Trainer. And then they still came back and still did the bloody deal the way the way they wanted and, to. But, but but that that's because and again Harry's point is absolutely correct. Darrow O'Brien refused to even meet the councillors uh, 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 and to ensure an alternative financing model was put on the table. The state has to be the developer in these instances. If it's not the developer, it can't control the costs and you end up with the kind of crazy prices uh, that we're going to get on, on those sites. But what I would say is, and, and those of us who are still campaigning on these issues, we need to still Im- impose the maximum level of pressure on government because not only can we not allow these types of deals to become the norm, we can't allow these deals individually to go ahead either. Um, and I saw somebody interestingly commenting on, on social media this morning uh, that Bartra um, have three years from the transfer of the land uh, to commence the development. And if not, they're in default of the original agreement. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, if, if, if I was the Minister for Housing, I'd have the smartest legal minds in the country trying to find a way of unpicking the contract that uh, DCC have entered into to see if you could withdraw at this late stage, because nobody can justify uh, uh, the cost either of delivering the homes oh. or the cost of renting or buying on that site. They're already justifying it. They're in my mentions on social media saying, we'll build it, you know, all supplies, good supply. And I can see Killian pulling out his hair already, just mentioning the, the, that that mantra. But that's, but that's the, look, I want to move on. I want to ask Harry a question. Harry, um, you, you were very good this week uh, pointing out that it was, it was uh, the, 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 the political theatrics of the not clapping event really uh, took away from what was a, a, a it, it became a, it became a drama about something that was much more serious. Yeah, I, gee, I wasn't expecting to be asked about that. <laughs> um, yeah, God, I should tweet less. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, what annoyed me about that wasn't the not clapping. I mean, look, that's that's whatever. Um, it was the whole conversation that developed around it. Um, it just the that that became the central part of it. And there's a, a problem, I think, with in, in general, we see it with a lot of things in, in this country, not just in this country, a lot of countries, how we center our own politicians and the minutiae of their behavior within the context of much broader things. And if you're going to do something like that as a stunt to get attention, like, okay, fine, cool, that's your strategy, go for it. But it was immediately, apparent immediately to me uh, that this was going to become the thing. And then the problem was it kind of got lent into. We had then, instead of, you know, coming on being like, oh, let's, okay, we've got this as the trigger point for our wider conversation. Um, we have, you know, the, 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 the PDP and so on are very, very good at starting conversations, but then are very poor at often controlling the direction of them. And we saw it again, like we, we end up having, you know, on the late debate talking about clapping, we've got all this stuff on the radio about whether or not we should be applauding for this. And then the arguing back and forth, oh, well, you saw what happened in the Greek parliament. So we were right in the first place not to engage in applauding. And again, that becoming the thing itself, the conduct of a number of TDs becoming at the center focus of the debate. And that I found really depressing because I think we are getting to the point where we are having, you know, conversations in this country that are important about our future direction, about our neutrality and so on, which, you know, I think is, is a good thing, obviously, um, that we are a neutral country. And I don't think we should be abrogating that. And I think it's good that people are calling out the direction of the government towards that. And conversations about, you know, the use of finances um, and Section 110s um, in, in the IFSC and in um, the place down on Fitzwilliam Square and so on to wash and launder money through this country. Uh, I don't think that's unique to Russia, but I think that's a good starting point for a wider conversation we need to have about the reform of the finance system and how this country facilitates that kind of um, 
well, I can't call it criminal for, <laughs> but you know, no, that kind no, of unethical, no. unethical behavior. So it the crime really is what's legal, Harry. Yeah. yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, legal crimes. Um, but what was very frustrating for me was seeing that conversation kind of revert to a very insular, very navel gaze. Was it right or wrong for the specific action to be taken by a specific political party it, that didn't really matter? Um, and that kind of took over. And I think the problem is there's a group of uh, people who would rather have that conversation uh, because the other conversations are awkward and uncomfortable and ask major questions about what is going on in this country. And it's very easy for them to turn a group like TBP into a punch bag for uh, misbehaving or doing the wrong thing. But then again, when it happens, that conversation is allowed to happen and lent into um, by the guys who did it. And it's kind of frustrating. I even heard like Richard Boyd Barrett going on on a, on a BBC podcast. We're seeing like international coverage of this kind of stuff now, talking about that, talking about the situation more more generally, but again, not talking about those specific things um, to do with the finances, no, to no do one, with no our relationship with Russia. It's and, getting and, lost. And it's no frustrating because they, they're the only ones who are willing to who have the seat. Well, not the only ones, but the left of the people, and the broader left, including PP, Sinn Féin, Arash Glass, whoever, are the ones who are driving that conversation. And to see them give up on driving that to lean into something way less consequential is to me really, really frustrating. I, I think there was a missed opportunity to tell people that, yeah, so for example, Finifo, uh, members of the EPP voted against the, the thing to, to look into tax havens and the tax avoidance. That was where the, the real the real ball was dropped, in my opinion. Um, uh, I don't know, Shamim, if, if you were watching that, but I doubt it, I doubt it, it gave, you, gave you much uh, comfort looking at um, people not clapping and then you're trying to, you know, you're, you're busy trying to work out how the, the visa systems works. I, I would imagine people are frustrated uh, watching that sort of set piece. I think Harry uh, hit the nail on the head by saying just because they want to kind of avoid a lot of awkward conversations, it's, just, it's, it's easier to kind of focus on the trivial and we had that, I think Richard Boyd Barrett, the Independent, had this piece about the whole thing with Bella Hadid following him on social media. You know, it's just very trivial things that um, some papers, I think, seem to be focusing on because um, pushing the wider kind of conversation is very uncomfortable and people don't want to go there. Um, so it's kind of disappointing, as you said, absolutely frustrating to see. It just takes the focus away from what matters and what we should talk about, you know. Yeah. Um. I look. There, there's the one thing I would like to to go to, and I, I'll ask people for a comment. The IPC, IPCC report came out this week, and it got very little coverage, considering. And maybe we can understand. You know, there's there's a war going on, but we've been told now we've three years to 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 avoid the worst of the one and a half percent, a one and a half rise in 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 and um. You know, uh, Mary Robinson was very strong on this, saying anybody who's under 70 is going to suffer the consequences. Anybody currently under 30 is going to be, it'll be catastrophic. I mean, I don't know, like, Harry, uh, maybe you'll be first, to, if that's okay, just on, on this, because... You you know you've been banging this drum. That's your that's been that's been your political genesis. It just seems to me that no one has um, really sat up and paid attention. Bar maybe a really excellent uh, coverage by by uh, Philip Boucher Hayes actually did some good stuff on it this week, but it was very very small. Yeah, it, it's really like obviously it's a global issue with this not just not being taken seriously. Um, and I mean, even if you look at the 
there's multiple versions of the report. There's the full report, which is like 3,000 pages long, which understandably nobody's going to read. Then there's like an executive summary and there's like a political summary that's done. And you can sort of see what makes it into each of those kind of stages as what the priorities of the new sort of parties to this um, have. And I think particularly in, in this country, we have, uh, I don't think it's unique to this country, but I think particularly in this country, we have a problem in that we don't understand the scope and scale of this. And there's a huge pressure in this country to boil all of this down to individual action pieces to say, as an individual, you're responsible for your carbon footprint, and therefore you have to behave better in order to avoid um, climate catastrophe. And there's certain elements of that, like people will have to inevitably change, make certain changes to their lifestyle, that's fine. But there are much smaller things that need to happen within a much, much wider context. And there's a problem, I think, insofar as that having the Greens in government and not taking this as serious as they should be kind of gives people, I think, a false kind of impression. Oh, look, there's somebody taking care of it. Like, we're all super plugged in here. Um, but a lot of people, you know, aren't necessarily paying as much attention as we are. And quite rightly, people have other things going on in their lives, uh, don't have time to sit down and read 100 pages of climate report. Um, but it's like there's there's a belief that, oh, look, these things are happening. There's all these headline policies that are being made. Think we're, we're doing our bit. We're trying our part. And there are people who are making efforts and making those sacrifices. And it frustrates because that's all going to be in vain if you don't have the bigger thing being looked at. Like when you look at even on an EU level, the solution being like, oh, gas is a transition fuel and we have, oh, yeah. you have more LNGs and then tying that into all the Russia and Ukraine stuff. And it's like that isn't going to solve this in the long term. That isn't going to have the problem. We have issues where now we've got wind farms getting scrapped that have been sitting there because you know they couldn't follow the standard legal procedure to get it like planned and implemented correctly and um, basic things like that and then you have people turning around saying oh you know you need to to make adjustments to your heating you need to make adjustments to your use of, of water your shower whatever you pay your carbon tax uh, your fuel is going to be more expensive no you you know you can qualify for a grant to improve things in your home but you also need a certain amount of capital to do that yourself in the first place so it's not necessarily going to be that useful and it's all or even the EV grants, which again make no sense on two ends. Firstly, if it, like a car is super expensive, it doesn't qualify for a grant. I mean, I understand the appeal of that, but if somebody's buying an electric car, okay, you should probably still subsidize it. But on the other end, if you can get an electric car for less than fourteen thousand euro, you don't get a grant, which doesn't make any sense either. So you're kind of chopping off both ends of it to meet uh, this country's mad obsession with means testing every single thing humanly imaginable, and also the base assumption that everyone just has fourteen grand lying around to spend on a car, which is also nuts. But we've completely addressed this the wrong way. And then if you look at like broader structural things. Things like again, for example, a uh, CETA. I, I, it's gone quiet recently because it's oh, kind of yeah. news. This is a good example of it. It's like if you look at the effect um, ISDS mechanisms have had on climate change, you have the people, the ones who are telling us, "Oh, this is serious," and as a result of that, you need to change your behaviour. Now we're going to get into this thing at a state level, and we support getting into this thing at a state level that will probably prevent us from making the large changes needed to. Oh, we're still going to give planning permission to terminals. We're still going to have data centers coming into this country. Don't worry about the big stuff. You can just fix this yourself. And that makes it really hard for people to grapple with the oh. entire thing that's going on because oh. it's all something I have to do as an individual, which, and I which... have to fix and I have to make sacrifices. And that's like a I... not going to solve the problem, and b that's just making people's lives miserable. And you're, the government is asking people to just accept the misery. I might, I might, I might just go quickly to Owen on this because uh, Owen, have you decided now that it, what's really going to fix it? And I, I hate to be flippant, but are you going to shower? Are you going to have a shorter shower now, Owen? And that, and and we're just going to understand that that's what um, is going to get it done. Um, I mean, first of all, Harry's point is right that, that too much of the debates, because there's actually a very large volume of debate uh, over the last number of years in the doll on these issues. It is about those personal responsibility uh, uh, theories rather than the structural change. But there is a relationship between the conversation we're now having and what we started off having in relation to housing, because ultimately it's the same set of, of problems. 
we, we have a government that on the one hand uh, wants to try and incentivize private industry uh, to develop infrastructure um, rather than doing it through a direct public investment. And whether that's for uh, uh, on land or, or offshore wind or for public transport uh, or for dealing with embodied carbon, for example, in the built environment. And at the same time, there is no long-term strategic uh, thinking. So, for example, we do need to retrofit uh, uh, all of those homes, but huge numbers of working families uh, who won't be able to access the 100% retrofit won't be able to access the credit uh, of the 10 to 25,000 euros to retrofit, so they'll just be left behind. Likewise, for example, with public transport, um, it's all very well saying we want to reduce people's use of cars, uh, but for example, in rural Ireland, we have virtually no public transport network, and even in our larger cities, it's limited, notwithstanding uh, 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 some of the improvements of bus connects. So, like housing, we need long-term strategic thinking and very, very significant uh, state-led investment, as long as uh, alongside the right kind of incentivizing of private sector investment to provide that critical infrastructure. Uh, and wind is going to be key. Public transport is going to be key. But also, we cannot meet the housing challenge in front of us if we keep building with concrete and steel and cement and block. Uh, and in fact, uh, one of the interesting things people don't often hear is not only do we have the technology to have low carbon cement, for example, uh, 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 and uh, uh, concrete, uh, as well as zero carbon timber, uh, it actually costs less to, to produce. So there's a whole range of long term strategic decisions that need to be taken and need to be taken now. And I think the report from Wednesday highlights that. There is a wider issue about the lack of media coverage of it, um, and that is something that has to be addressed. And in fairness, Caroline Doherty in the Irish Independent does some really, really good stuff and is plugging away as a kind of a lone voice in there. You have Green News uh, online. There are people who are trying to influence the public debate. I, uh, uh, I, I, I saw the, the, the Intercept this week let go their uh, climate journalist. Like, and the Intercept is a big publication, you know, in the <laughs> yeah. US, and, and they let go there. So it's just, it is it is worrying. Um, Killian, I, I, I would ask you for a comment on it as well, but I want to, I want to frame it differently. I don't know if you're aware that we, when um, Owen mentioned wind, there, there is a lot of talk, and it's not just speculation. I've seen the I've seen the 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 stockholder, uh, the the share, the stockbroker uh, tip sheets saying that they'd like to implement our renewables, our wind energy through a similar model as the REITs. Uh, and they, you know, they'll 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 pay to they'll they'll say to the government, we'll build your we'll build your uh, your renewable uh, offshore wind wind infrastructure, but we want the same tax tax breaks and deals that 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 we get on the housing side. I don't know if you were aware of that. No, I wasn't. But I suppose it kind of doesn't. I say this, but with a big sigh at the, at the start, you could hear it. Just sums up maybe approach to any kind of big scale challenges we have. It's 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 been foisted onto maybe the private market, maybe the private market are only delighted to try and solve it in some ways. It can be a lot of money in it. You're helping people in desperation. Same with housing, same with maybe climate change, maybe the private sector will be willing to step up and try and help in that regard. Uh, I wasn't aware of that deal in particular, but it, it kind of it sums up a lot of, I'm not trying to go, get into government bashing here, but a lot of the big problems they seem to face at the moment, it, there is kind of a putting you, not quite putting your cap out to the private sector, but go out to the private sector and say, what can you do for us? Um, just a little bit of change tack in, in, in that similar regard. We're having that on Monday tomorrow where, you know, the, the housing department is, is going to go out to the private sector and all different property heads to try and say, what can you do for us to help solve the Ukrainian refugee crisis? And, and you're kind of, and talking to people who are going to attend that meeting, we're saying, well, 
well, why aren't you, you're coming to us, looking to us to solve the whole problem for you. Do, you. do you have no things you want to talk to us about or you know, solutions of your own? I think that's where we're at. A, that's the level of crisis point we're at in many different areas of society, whether it's housing, whether it's the Ukraine crisis, whether it's energy, whether it's crisis, whether it's climate crisis, kind of the government really not knowing where to, where to go, who to who's best to help them. And, and then in that, in, that, in that kind of vacuum, you kind of allow some bad actors or some people who are going to rip you off, come, in, come into the void. Um, I'd like but again, again, like no, no, again. In fairness, I know that the approach was made to the uh, to Ossian Smith. I don't know how successful it's been, but I know they were very they were very excited about the opportunity to do it. I know that that because I've read the bloody thing. Um, it, it it is it is it is not something I'd like to countenance that we you know we'd we'd hand it all over to the same sort of model that that's that's failing to fix the housing crisis <laughs> that, that, that that's not something that's really healthy um the other but, but so many things are becoming reliant like all aspects of society are becoming reliant on the private sector you know you, you see it's it's getting like the like the best bus route between um, Dublin and Galway is now private. Like the, that the best transport routes are now private between there. The best, the best, some of the best housing solutions coming to the market, not best, not most cost effective, but the most consistent are coming from the private sector. Some of the biggest stream is coming from the private sector. You know, and same, same. Maybe that will come into the climate crisis. The best, the most active solutions will become from the private sector. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's one of those things that's not within the government's capacity to solve it, which you won't get them to ever admit. Harry, did you want to say something? <laughs> Yeah, no, it's interesting about the private sector. If you look at like the retrofit, for example, and solar panels and things like that, like that is all done through through private companies. You'll have your subsidy, and it, currently the delivery is essentially through private bodies. Um, but this is the thing; it's the most effective way of doing it because the state isn't has made a policy decision not to engage with that. And when we talk about things like state investment, it's like, okay, why isn't the state then making it its business to put a solar panel on everybody's roof, just for example, or to go and say, right, we're just going to set up a, an agency to go and manage all of these retrofits because we can do it at a lower cost, we can do it at a bigger scale than the private sector can't realistically within the context of this country. Um, and that's kind of it. Like The private sector becomes the most effective way, or in this case, really the only way of doing it because of the conscious decision of the state that it was going to subsidize the private sector to do that instead of actually going out and paying for it itself. And that's what needs to happen. And that's what needs to change, in my view, is the state needs to be the one saying, right, we're just going to go and retrofit everybody's homes and it's going to cost a load of money. And that's absolutely fine because if we're spending a load of money to make people's lives better and ultimately save the planet, that's kind of the purpose of the state. So yeah, I think that that's a, that's a dynamic that I think very much But exists. Harry, that would also be in the Change. common good. You know, like, like that's why I can't wrap my head around in that. Maybe the state is reluctant to get involved in house building again or reluctant to get involved in these kind of big agencies that go out and solve, a lot of, solve the crisis, a lot of problem like retrofitting. But like saying, oh, what we do with the workers when they're done. It's like, don't worry about it. Like, not, not trying to speak too morbidly about this. Don't worry about a current government. You'll all be long gone by the time that agency is wrapped up because this retrofitting is going to go on for a very, very, very long time. Like, it's just, a, and that would be in the common good to do, uh, surely. But there's surely also, be in the, can I just say that there's also huge opportunities here that the government is missing. So if you go back to what I was saying about high quality timber frame homes, uh, and again, these are becoming the norm in many European jurisdictions. What government should be doing is taking the the small number of companies who are currently providing these products at a low scale and invest heavily through the strategic investment fund to create uh, those kind of new green jobs of the future. Uh, There's no reason why the state couldn't build a large manufacturing plant anywhere in the Midlands or anywhere close to the existing uh, companies. 
and start providing really, really large volumes of high quality, and as it happens to be lower cost and almost zero carbon housing infrastructure, that would not only then supply the public sector, it would also be purchased at a return to the state by the private sector. And you could create high quality manufacturing jobs that will provide people with work who, as we move through this transition away from a high carbon economy, aren't going to be able to work in some of the areas they're working in the minute. So it goes back again to Harry's point around a just transition. There are opportunities now. There is funding available to the state now. And what you need is, you know, it's almost just like that kind of Sean Lamas moment where the state decides, look, we are going to step in uh, on a number of critically important areas uh, and climate change, uh, housing, uh, public transport and childcare being the most uh, obvious four and start investing heavily. And it doesn't always have to be exchequer revenue. There's lots of, of ISA finance there where the state uh, and the public could actually make commercial returns uh, on producing some of this. I have Eric Lonergan coming out back on next week to talk about his, and uh, his, his book is brilliant. And it's, yeah. it's nicely some of like, OK, so some of the stuff in the book is a little bit too, you know, capitalism can save itself. And, yeah, and, yeah. and you'll critique some of that, I'm sure. But also, you know, his, his whole argument is 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 about how you reorientate uh, the use of, of fiscal and investment policy instruments uh, to make the bad stuff at a large structural scale much, much more expensive and to incentivize the good stuff. But separate to that, there is a role for the state. And again, I, 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 I'm becoming obsessed with this factory uh, uh, wherever it's going to be built in, in the Midlands. But seriously, the technology... <laughs> you like, sound like Robert, Rob Cass. You but, know, Rob, but, that is... Uh, um, he, he, here's the point. The technology is there. The workers are there. The finance is there. The only people who can do this now are the state. I was with one high-grade timber uh, uh, product manufacturer recently who's got some contracts building some schools and he's done a small amount of social and, and private housing. And I asked him, I said, okay, so if we wanted to scale this up, so you were employing three, four, five hundred 500 people uh, and you were churning out large volumes of really, really good quality, high-grade timber products to manufacture homes uh, at a significantly reduced price. And again, these are almost zero carbon products, right? So it's not even low carbon uh, cement and concrete. It's almost zero carbon. And he said, and he quoted the amount of money that he needed, and the only place you'll get that is ISTIF. So the state could actually take uh, advantage of lots of opportunities here, as well as uh, bear a lot of the costs. But there's just a lack of long-term strategic vision and a lack of risk-taking by the state to take some of those opportunities uh, that are right in front of us now. And long-term low-interest borrowing by the state isn't going to be available forever. We no, have a small and diminishing the, the, window of opportunity and, and, and to do and this now. And that's, and that's going to actually... That's the next eighteen months are going to be are, are really really important that we start to avail of the the credit at the, at that stage because that's where the window is in terms of the interest rate cycle, and what happens after that, you know, if I was to, if I was to gamble, let's say it's going the other way, but we'll look, let's just see where it's going. And um, I've one last question for people, Shamim. It's going to be interesting because the Good Friday Agreement is twenty four years old today, so you probably weren't even born. <laughs> um, yeah, whereas uh, my, my myself, Harry, Owen, and Killian, like Killian, you're the eldest here. Um, just the last few days on, it's been worrying uh, to see a lot of anti-Good uh, Friday agreement. The, the, the Belfast agreement is dead. All of all of the rhetoric. And I know, Harry, just before we came on, we were touching on the, the, the storm of elections, what's, what's actually happening. Um, it's, it's very difficult times for, for the, the agreement. But am I, am I right in saying, and I'll put this to maybe own first, uh, uh, but am I right in saying, I don't think the numbers 
it's a noisy, it's a noisy amount of people. The usual people are making a lot of noise, but they don't have enough traction to say that the, the agreement is dead and that they're tearing it up. And this is the, this is, that's, I don't think that's the reality bared out. Albeit, I know you're you're obviously Sinn Fein affiliated, but I do believe there's also a middle ground in in, in the north. There's no interest in 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 green or, or green or orange anymore. So, first of all, I think I'm the oldest in the room, um, and and obviously was actively involved in the party at, at the time of the agreement. Look, first of all, it's important, and 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 Harry can talk about the polls uh, better than most of us. But it's important to see where public opinion is at, and just like a a large majority of people in the north oppose Brexit. A large majority of people in the north also want the Belfast Agreement to work and also want the protocol to work. You know, Jamie Bryson standing on a wheelie bin speaking to a small group of loyalists isn't the same as the enormous protests, for example, against the Anglo-Irish Agreement with Molyneux and Paisley. And it's important that we put some of that in perspective. However, and look, you know, I lived in Belfast for 11 years. I was up canvassing in West Belfast yesterday. Small numbers of people can cause an awful lot of damage and therefore, while it's important not to uh, overestimate uh, the scale of the challenge, it's also important not to underestimate it. And therefore, we need to keep engaging uh, uh, with everybody. But I do think what the opinion polls show is it's not about people not uh, caring about orange or green. Uh, uh, most people understand the importance of constitutional arrangements and how they can shape for good or for bad uh, the social and economic uh, realities of, of, of life. But I also think uh, the overwhelming majority of people want progress. Uh, it doesn't matter if they're unionist, nationalist uh, uh, or, or other. Uh, they want things to work. They want life to get better. They want the executive to be up and running and functioning and with the very limited powers that it has, uh, 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 provide the services that, that it does. So I've always been optimistic. I, I lived in Belfast from 95 uh, to 2006 it is an immeasurably better place today uh, to live and to visit than it was back then. Are, are we out of the woods yet? Are we without difficulties? No, but but I wouldn't sensationalise it. I'm not at all suggesting you're doing that. But we have issues that have to be worked through, and crucially, okay. crucially, challenge, ch- challenges are housing, health, um, same social mobility has become a huge factor. Whereby, and that's one of the, and and that's and that's not orange or green. That's just. That's just a societal yeah, but, challenge. But, 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 but Tony, the, the concern that the vast majority of people in the North have with both constitutional arrangements uh, and issues around culture and identity, they're also real issues. Um, and in particular, for, for the last decade, uh, working class loyalists uh, who have been left behind by the failures, both of Tory austerity and, and, and some of the mishandling of what's gone on in the executive uh, by some of the parties, those for those people, we have to understand that those issues around culture and identity and constitution are important and we have to engage them, not dismiss them. Uh, and as somebody who lived right on an interface uh, and witnessed uh, at close hand very significant levels of loyalist interface violence by the UDA, uh, I take those kinds of challenges seriously. So it's not about, you know, there's oh, often yeah. this trope. There's, but let me make this I, point because it's important. There's often this trope thrown out that, you know, uh, uh, new generations of people aren't interested in orange or green. It doesn't matter what people are interested in. Whatever is important to them is stuff we have to find solutions to. Uh, and therefore, we have to find a place in the shared future we're building together uh, uh, to tackle all of those, as well as the challenges in housing, in health, uh, uh, in employment, etc. Uh, but I've always been an optimist. Um, and and I, I still think there's there's a lot of hope and a lot of goodwill and a lot of good work that's been done. We just have to keep building on that. I know, like I speak to members, like again, regularly on the podcast, members of the Loyalist and Unionist community, and they're, they're, they, 
their cultural identity is important to them, but they also understand the challenges facing the the, the, the economics, the society, the education, and and I hate to say it, some of the issues that have become again, it's an issue here. We don't really it has to. It's it's yet to come. I saw Tony Duffin talking about it, the opioid problems that we're now developing in in, in wider society. It's systemic, unfortunately, in Belfast as well. Um, so we'll continue to cover it. I look, I don't I, I don't know if anybody has any other comments. I know we've gone a lot longer than we than we thought we would today, folks, and I appreciate your patience and your time harry you've got one p- comment there just, just one small thing and again as i mentioned before we started recording um i'm not confident enough that i know enough to really interpret the polling data for for parties and how that will look in the assembly there's one thing owen said that i think is hugely important that was supported from the last poll um the university of liverpool poll where when they asked about things like naming of ministers um changing the system for cross-community support and the designation of mlas into the three categories then what they would require to have like again, that support within the within the chamber and not paying uh, ministers if a government isn't formed. Really, uh, all of those were had may, way more people in favour than against. I think that really speaks to this thing about things functioning and having a like a normal working government. Whatever that arrangement is going to look like is probably the seems to be the most pressing thing and seems to have way wider support than any single political party does in the north and i think that's such a key part of the election that's thing we don't talk about a lot down here because we do tend to see it in terms of in our media coverage anyway tends to see it very much in terms of uh, green and orange so i think that kind of functionality and wanting a working government that really does come through from the polling shameen can i ask you have you anything coming out this week we can can we plug something give you give you give you give you go what have you got i've been working on a lot of stuff but just to say what i have for next week it's about how sometimes immigration officers, especially at GNIB, Garda National Immigration Bureau, where the guards take care of immigration, they're not familiar with the Immigration Act and sometimes unlawfully charging people for uh, required residence permits when they, they are exempt even, you know. Okay, so that's something that actually I know Vicky Conway on, on police had covered as well, that the the, the, the troubles we, that has been had around that. So it's interesting. I'll keep an eye out for that. Obviously, like, like folks, Killian, Killian is the business post. So so he 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 knows what he's doing. And I, I don't mean to be, be to be giving you a hard time, Killian, but 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 Shamim's Dublin Inquirer. Go on, give give the Dublin Inquirer sub, 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 subscribe, please, folks. Give them support the independent as well. I do, uh, I do subscribe to the Dublin Inquirer. What are you trying to defame me on on, on live Zoom radio? You know, no, like Jane, you know, the work Dublin Inquiry does is stellar, and, that, and like that's the thing that Leash Nail, and I think I always always credit. I've been on podcast with her with Rory before. Yeah, she's on the like. I think I'm on like the the second line of the fence. She's on the front line reporting on all the really like the really important things on the ground. They do amazing work on housing. Yeah, no, look, um, thanks. And Killian, another, another topics. Another, look, it's it's great, folks. Thanks for listening. Um, if you're so particularly for the um the people in the audience there, because I know you all know him. He, the other fella is he's not well. I know you you might have seen his message last yesterday on Twitter. He he's not well, he's not been well for a while. So if you could, would you just send him an angry message and tell him to get off his hole? I'm sick of having to carry the can for everything. Um and maybe give him a bit of a hard time. It, it, I'd I'd really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for listening, folks, and we will leave it there. Thanks so much for everybody. Thanks, Killian. Thanks, Owen, thanks, Shamim, and thanks, Harry. Uh, it was it was fantastic. Uh, and we'll be back tomorrow. Uh, we have uh we're, we're going back on housing tomorrow I think we're covering it again from a a, a northern perspective so you might be interested in that talk to you soon folks take care bye bye